2: Well, hello again, my friend, and welcome to the Stream Police podcast for June 2019. It's our 68th episode of the show, which may not sound like a lot compared to some other podcasts that crank them out a couple times a week, but we do this show once a month now. And uh, we hope that uh, you guys really enjoy it. If you do, make sure you do all the usual stuff that, you know, is important to keep your favorite podcasts afloat, which is uh, basically just go on to uh, wherever it is you listen to it, give it a big, fat, nice review, full five stars if we've earned it, and uh, make sure you subscribe, make sure you pass the word along to others as well. I always crack up when I hear uh, podcasters say that, it wouldn't be possible to do this show without these sponsors. Let me read 27 sponsors in the middle of an episode. Whereas, you know, I mean, I've been podcasting since 2006, have never made a single dime off of any of my shows, have never uh, read an ad on any of my shows, and uh, the shows are entirely possible. Not that I'm like some great savior because I do all this for totally for free, don't make any money, and, uh, you know, all that. Don't charge you guys anything. Don't charge advertisers anything. Uh, But I'm just saying, it is possible, believe it or not. Hello, I'm Clint Davis, and uh, I talk about movies and TV here on the show. And uh, Andy Sedlak, who talks about music, we'll be hearing from him in just a little bit on this latest edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Always glad to uh, be along with you guys wherever it is that you choose to listen to the show. On your ride to work, maybe while you're sitting at work, half paying attention to what you're doing, mostly paying attention to what I'm doing uh, which is telling you about movies and television. We got a big episode today because we have a lot of Game of Thrones reaction to talk about. Now, I know it's been already uh, several weeks since the finale aired. So, you know, hopefully you've had some time to digest it. Maybe it already feels like old news in, the, in today's you know, a uh, world of entertainment with everything moving at lightning pace all the time, everyone moving on to a new show every single day of the week. Uh, but I, I think, you know, we, we've got to spend a lot of time talking about this because this was really the cultural television event of at least this year, but of the last few years, I would say, the final run of Game of Thrones. Absolutely. Everyone was talking about it. People got into the show just so they wouldn't be left out of the conversation. And that is rare in today's world, be it movies, television, video games, whatever it could be a book, um, it's rare that that many people jump on something just so they don't get you know left out. So I want to let you know, as usual, you can follow me on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis, Mr. Clint Davis, and uh, please do that because if you want to know like what I'm watching, I always post pictures of every movie I'm watching on there, so you can really kind of get a glimpse at. Uh, how uh, I'm able to cope with staying home every day with a less than one-year-old child, it's because by night I watch movies uh, and I unwind that way and I talk about them on Instagram sometimes. I don't do a whole lot of commentary on there. I just kind of want to let you know what I, what it is I'm watching, and I'm always hoping to hear from you guys if you've seen these movies or or what. I don't know. I watch a lot of kind of esoteric stuff, but... Uh, regardless, you know, there's too much good old stuff to watch to just get caught up in new things that are out there. That's what I'm a firm believer in that. But I'll tell you a little bit later on in the show what the best thing I watched this month was. And that is always a uh, movie. I always usually anyway pick out a movie for that segment. So something that you should definitely check out. All right, I'm feeling better this month, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, light my stogie up. I'm sitting in my closet in uh, Columbus, Ohio, on the outskirts of beautiful Columbus, Ohio. Not as beautiful as Cincinnati, sorry to say, but sitting in my closet talking to you about movies and TV. I always like to light a good stogie up to get me in the mood to do it all and to sit here and ramble and tell you, my friend, about what I've been watching. So uh, my Zippo needs a new Flint, so i got to break out the butane lighter today, but uh, bear with me. Let me go ahead and get that going. All right, now that we've got that out of the way, let's go ahead and get to uh, the way that we usually open up this show, which is by dipping into the history of television's greatest theme songs of all time. In a little segment we call the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. It's our 41st edition uh, into the canon of greatest TV show theme songs. And I figured, you know what, since we're going to spend some time today talking about the end of HBO's Game of Thrones, I thought now would be the time to dust off its theme song and induct it into our own Hall of Fame. I mean, look, no matter what you thought of the show as it went on, the theme song was always a highlight of Game of Thrones. It never changed. The opening animation changed a little bit to reflect what was going on in the show and reflect new cast members and cast members who had been killed and things like that Uh, but the theme song itself never changed and was always one of the things that you could count on at least uh, being a good part of this program every single week for the last eight years so that's our pick for the greatest tv show theme song of all time this week So the Game of Thrones theme, what kind of a person could compose a tune that is this sinister and grim sounding? Well, the answer, my friend, is very simple. Only a German could compose something like this. And the Game of Thrones theme was written by a German-born composer named Ramin Jawadi, who was born in Germany but educated in America. And if Ramin Jawadi doesn't sound like your typical German uh, name, he was born to Iranian parents actually over there in Deutschland, so uh, pretty interesting background for this guy. Jawadi has a great background in film music composition and when we're talking about his work, he has worked with heavyweight composers like Hans Zimmer, Klaus Bedelt. Uh, He was kind of a protege to both of those guys in his early years. He's done the music also for films like Iron Man, uh, Pacific Rim. He did the music for the 2010 remake of Clash of the Titans. So obviously, his wheelhouse is epic fantasy and action. So how Jawadi got this job was that he was approached by the creators of Game of Thrones, D.B. Weiss and David Benioff, to come up with a theme song for their new HBO show back in 2011. And he apparently came up with this theme song after watching like a mock-up version of the opening title sequence and having the show's plot described to him. I tell you, I think the genius move behind the Game of Thrones theme song is that he featured the cello as the main instrument and he used a bunch of minor keys in uh, all the music that he wrote for it. So basically it makes the whole thing sound as foreboding as humanly possible. And Jawadia said that he was tired of hearing flutes and violins being used as the main instruments in fantasy projects, so he wanted to go with, like, a heavier instrument as the lead voice, and so he broke out the cello. Hard to get a whole lot heavier than that. The song's main little tune there that you hear all throughout is played back and forth by several instruments, kind of suggesting the interplay between the various characters in the show, and the whole song brings to mind, like, a a long journey, which is obviously what many of the characters in the show go through. And as always, with a great TV theme song, its music fits exactly what the show feels like. Not necessarily what every episode of the show you know sums up every episode of the show but it it, you know just fits the overall feel of the show so you hear this song you immediately could think of where this is going to go and i think with an instrumental song it's hard to do but i think jawadi nailed it with the game of thrones theme there's nothing subtle or simple about this song and the same exact thing could be said about the show in its best days Doing the Game of Thrones theme was obviously a huge win for Jawadi. He won an Emmy for his work on Game of Thrones, and he went on to compose the theme song for HBO's other current epic, Westworld. That's also a great theme song, if you ask me. Game of Thrones itself, of course, ran for 73 episodes over the course of eight seasons on HBO before wrapping up in 2019 with a record-breaking run for the network becoming its most popular show ever, which is putting it in serious... Territory because, you know, HBO has brought us some of the greatest television shows of all time. Its theme song, the Game of Thrones theme, will live forever inside our own mausoleum of TV music as our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. We'll have that, the Game of Thrones theme, down there in the 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 crypt, I guess, uh, by Ramin Jawadi. We'll have this song down there in the crypt with the body of Ned Stark and Littlefinger and everybody else who got the axe during their time on the program. All right, so Game of Thrones, it's all over, my friend. As I'm sure you know, even if you didn't watch the show, I'm sure you realize that the finale aired uh, in the last few weeks since we last spoke. Uh, Because there were countless news stories about the finale, about each episode. Every website on Earth was writing news stories about this show, which I think, you know, is the greatest thing you can point to when talking about how much of a phenomenon this program became in the time that it aired. And think about it. This is a fantasy show, right? I mean, this is a show set in like it's a period show set in fantasy times. With dragons, and with zombies, and with constant backstabbing, and with graphic sex, and graphic violence, and seriously graphic language. And a cast that's made up almost entirely of British actors, a lot of unknowns before they started on this show, as far as the main characters go. But yeah, the whole cast almost is British. There's like almost no one in this cast that most American viewers would ever recognize, except for Sean Bean in that first season. He was kind of pointed at, too, as this is the guy that people will know that we can hook them into the show because everyone likes Sean Bean. Everyone respects Sean Bean. He's a great actor. When he's in something, it gives it some legitimacy, right? So he was the one actor that people could kind of point to and go, yeah, I know him. I mean, you know, I, I loved him in the Bond movies, and it, whether it was the Sharps movies, I guess that would be more of a British thing. But regardless, I'm just saying, It's kind of amazing how popular this show became when you think about the themes of it, when you think about uh, what kind of, you know, just graphic things were involved in every episode, when you think about the setting, when you think about the actors in the cast, uh, the guys behind the show, you know, not huge name, big auteur TV creators or anything like that. So just it kind of stuns me that this show did become as big as it did. And I told you in last month's episode that, you know, I've ripped Game of Thrones a bunch in the last few years. I've told you why. If you go back through past episodes and you see Game of Thrones in the title, download them and listen to them and you'll see, you know, hear my complaints about the series as it has gone on. I think it was really something beautiful and special in its first few seasons, beautiful in a completely grim way. Uh, But something really unexpected and something really mature and uh, just unexpected, I think, is the best word for those early seasons. And then it became something much more formulaic. It became something much more predictable and it became something much more in line with what we've seen before, which in the early seasons, it was not like something we had seen before on television. But I told you last month that when this show ended, we were going to lose one of the great cultural touchstones that we've had in I mean, in decades, really, this is one of those shows in, in a time where people don't gather around to watch shows. Game of Thrones broke, was the exception to that rule. I'm going to talk about its legacy a little bit more coming up in a minute. But I, I want to talk about the finale itself and the final run of the show. All right. So the series finale aired a few weeks ago. And, and I have to say, I mean, I was blown away because usually there's a split among viewers as to whether a series finale is good or not. It's almost always the case. Finales are extremely divisive. It's the last time you're going to see these characters doing anything new. It's the last time you're going to be in that setting, uh, usually. And it's it's very sad. It's an emotional thing for everyone because with a TV series, you spend a lot of time getting to know these people. You spend a lot of time being invested in their lives, in their storylines. You've imagined yourself the way you want things to end. And no matter how good the ending is to a series, people usually, or bad even, people are usually split. You'll find people on both sides kind of saying, no, I loved it. I see what they were doing, or I hated it. I didn't understand it at all. I thought it was stupid. I would have ended it this way. There's always going to be differing opinions on a finale of any series. It's the most controversial episode of every show, always. It's always that way. So, I was expecting that with Game of Thrones. I was expecting there to be like a split, maybe, but there was no split, whatever. This is like the most universally hated finale that I've ever seen. I don't I haven't heard anyone defending this series finale from, you know, television critics, experts to uh fans of the show, very vocal fans of the show. I haven't read anyone coming out and saying this is the finale I was hoping for. This is exactly what I wanted. This is great. It seemed like everyone was just wiping their ass with it. So it's kind of remarkable in that way. I think everyone hated this episode and pretty much everyone hated the entire final season from start to finish, uh, which speaks to the passion of the fan base and speaks to how much this show meant to a lot of people, especially, I mean, you've got that whole audience of people who read the books, and now they're like, I mean, they're like, oh, my God, I, I hope that, you know, George R. R. Martin learns something and changes things completely because he's still got several books to go, so he's got a lot of things he could change with the ending. He could kind of use the show as almost his, you know, uh, sounding board of what worked what didn't work and clearly there was a lot that did not work in that final run of the show a lot of people unsatisfied with the way things went and i'm included in that i just think it's impressive on the part of the showrunners runners uh, weiss and benioff that they were able to <laughs> make an episode that everyone pretty much hated and that they were able to really ruin a show that so many people thought was one of the greatest tv series ever i remember. I was pissed off because I've always been really into television. I've always been really serious about it. I mean, not always, not since I was like a kid, but, uh, but you know, in the last like 10, 15 years, I've always been really serious about, you know, what I watch and, and how great television can be. And th- it, was, it really made me mad because there were all these like advertisement images of Game of Thrones, especially once you got to about 2014. And I had not watched the show yet at that point. I started watching Game of Thrones. Beth was into it, and I finally relented and gave in. Um, I was mad because you know The Sopranos was my favorite HBO show, and everyone was like, "Well, it's more popular than The Sopranos. It's got big more viewers than The Sopranos. It, it broke all those HBO records that were set by The Sopranos." And people were even having the audacity to say that it was better than The Sopranos, even though it was still in the middle of its run. It was still kind of early in its run. And they were saying that it was the greatest TV show of all time. I remember reading that uh, from like the L.A. Times said that it was the greatest TV show ever. And this was in like 2014. All right. So a few seasons into it. and This was when the show really was at its peak. So when I went back and watched it and I was like, oh, my God, through the first three seasons, it is really something fantastic. It's something that you just every week you feel like there's something happening that you need to see and you don't know where it's going to go. But it all makes sense when it gets there. So that's the hallmark of good writing. And that's the hallmark of great television, which keeps you stringing along week after week. But then it just became something so boring and something so predictable and and something that was so obsessed with its own heroes uh, that it completely forgot about the teeth that it showed in the first few seasons. And the underlying lesson that there are no magic human beings who are just great people through and through. Everyone's got their flaws. And when people become leaders, usually they end up letting you down no matter how much you liked them in the lead up to that. So that's kind of what they forgot along the way. I just want to know how a show with so much edge during the first half of its run could wither into something so safe and boring in the end. Over the last few seasons, everything was telegraphed by 25 miles and it was so boring with the exception of one moment that was not telegraphed for 25 miles and I'll get to that in just a second. The entire finale though was just this feel good moment after feel good moment and if there's one thing that Game of Thrones fans hated during the last few seasons it was those feel good moments. People by and large hated those reunion like the seeing the characters that we had seen be on Journeys together kind of meet back and have a little, you know, cute moment together and wink at the camera and all that shit. People hated that about this show. So they should have read. I mean, I think that the writers, honestly, they should have been on Twitter a little bit more, seeing what really resonated with the audience and what didn't. And these feel-good moments did not resonate with anyone except for maybe a small subset of the audience, especially not this many. I mean, everyone wanted to see, I think, like Arya and the Hound reunite again, and we wanted to see how that was going to go. That wasn't a cute reunion by any means, but people wanted to see them see each other again to see how they would react to each other. And people wanted to see Jamie and uh, Brienne of Tarth kind of meet up again and, and probably wanted to see him get it on finally. And so things like that. Okay, I'll give you a pass on that, because people did want to see that, but the other shit, it it didn't need to happen every single episode, every moment after moment, it was all these feel-good things, like, every character in the show... Got some big moment, especially before they died. if there was a char- if characters died in the last season and they were portrayed as protagonists, then you knew they were going to go out as like a, in a blaze of glory. They were going to get this great moment where they got to look at the camera, get some applause, and get people ready to grab their tissues and the death was you could see it coming from two miles away, but they went out heroically and that i mean if you watch the first couple seasons of this show, I mean the biggest hero in the entire series dies in the most anticlimactic, no moment whatsoever, you know, kind of way. And even the biggest villain in the show, uh, well, at the time, anyway, I would say uh, Joffrey, the way he goes out when he goes out, also very anticlimactic, just kind of comes out of nowhere. And it's like, oh, he's choking. Oh, he's turning purple. Oh, my God. I mean, he didn't have some big moment. It was just he was at his wedding and there were tons of characters around. And that ended up being one of the signature moments of the series because, again, it just showed you, man. It's like life is fragile, and if you're a big asshole or if you're a, uh, somebody who makes it out, makes their life all about being virtuous and trying to undercut the people who are at the top who are evil, you're going to pay for it. I mean, it's easy to kill you. It's not that hard to kill people. And that's what this show was really showing you in the first few seasons. I mean, you, characters you thought were safe were not safe at all. But then in the last few seasons... It turned out that they were safe. But if somebody was going to die, you were going to see it coming by two miles, and they were going to get some great big moment to shine. And for you to, like I said, grab your tissues and maybe applaud and film a reaction video and post it on YouTube before the series moved on to the next scene. So it was just all kind of just dragged out, and and I don't know. I just didn't get it. And and there were these heroic characters winning at every turn, uh, winning easily, too, at every turn, And being rewarded for being boring heroes. It was just so against what was set up for the entire series. And what I would have to imagine George R.R. Martin himself envisioned. But, I mean, he was involved with this series. So it's not like we can say he has nothing to do with it. Because I'm sure he was consulted a lot during the end run. And I don't know. I don't know how much they, they took his you know, word into what happened in the end, but man, I really hope that he kind of changes some things up. I hope this is not what people are going to see in the books. Not that I'm going to read them. You know, I tried to read the first book. I got to tell you, man, I was bored to tears. I don't know. Just the writing style, just not my thing at all. Uh, just, I don't, I do not like that Tolkien kind of writing style where we're going to spend 25 pages describing somebody's coat. Uh, it's just not my style needed to move a little bit quicker for me. And I will watch a 10-hour documentary without batting an eye, but if I pick up a book that feels like a phone book, there's no chance in hell that I'm going to read that thing. It's just, just <laughs> that's just me, man. I'm sorry. So even Cersei, all right, getting back to the show and ripping the finale, Cersei Lannister. This was not in the finale. This was in the penultimate episode. But Cersei, the biggest outright villain in the entire show. If anyone, If you asked anyone... Who's the biggest villain in Game of Thrones? Nobody would have told you that it was the Night King. They would have told you it was Cersei Lannister because she was fully human, and yet she was just so stone cold and so ruthless. And she stood for all these, you know, like birthright and things that everyone hates. Um, and she was just so brutal, but she was still a human being. She still had that inner, like that love for her children, which was what anchor, which like kept her afloat as far as being a human. But she was the biggest villain in the entire show. I think anyone would agree with that. Even Cersei was given a feel-good ending at the end of the series. She gets to die in the arms of the man that she loves, in the place that she loves, hidden away from the eyes of people that she would be embarrassed by. I mean, what kind of a death is that for the biggest villain on the series? You remember how Scar died in The Lion King? That, to me, is like... That's the best villain death. Like, that's the prototypical villain death for me. All the animals are gathered around watching the epic fight up at the top with the flames gathered everywhere. And the hero flings his own uncle, this evil lion... Off the cliff, and all the people that he was oppressed by get to watch his lifeless body fall and plummet and smash on the rocks and land in the fire and burn up and all that stuff. Talk about a cathartic death for a villain. Everyone gets to watch it. Everyone realizes how he died. No one will ever forget it. Simba's a hero forever. But Cersei Lannister just goes down into a hole, basically. gets buried under rubble. No one sees it. She dies with the one person that she loved in the entire world now that all her kids are dead. And that's how it's going to go down. I mean, I I just don't understand what was going through their head. To me, that one moment says more about where the show failed than anything else. I mean, everyone was looking forward to how are they going to kill Cersei? Like, we know she's going to die, right? But how are they going to kill her? Like, it's going to be one of the great moments in the show. This show that has been so revered for the way it kills characters. That's one of the all-time great things about the early run of Game of Thrones is it was so great at killing characters in different ways and graphic ways that you'll never forget. But Cersei gets to hug Jamie and get crushed by some rocks and you don't even see it. So that was it. That was the big villain of the show. That's how she went down. The, the second big villain, the Night King, gets stabbed in one little spot and explodes and dies. I mean, this is what this is what we were waiting for all that time, and he was that stupid to walk into something that it probably, you know, I mean, you ha- it had to be a trap. How could it not be a trap? I don't know. I just don't know what they were thinking. It was like they were just thinking so much about giving you big TV moments, and they wanted to make you gasp or something rather than doing things that. Would have made sense, or would have uh, kind of fit with the way the show has been for all these years. And there's a reason why the show was so popular with critics and with fans, and what it was doing was working for those few, those first few years. But then it just you know went off the rails and turned into a typical action show. It was an action series. So let me get to that one big quote-unquote shocking moment that did happen in the run up to the finale. So the writers' idea on Game of Thrones. Uh, the idea for a shocking twist, a George R.R. R. Martin style moment that was going to have everyone talking was to turn the show's biggest symbol for revolution and uprising into a genocidal despot who suddenly enjoys killing innocent people like that is that's what they came up with for their big shocking reveal. It came out of nowhere and that is not a compliment for a tv series at all. so i'm talking obviously about daenerys and when she just suddenly decides yeah, i think i'm going to burn everyone alive in this city, children, you know, included, innocent just working people servants, everyone, I'm just going to kill them all and crush the city. I was, All I could think about while she was burning down King's Landing was the infrastructure costs. and that. So you're going to spend the first half of your rule rebuilding the city that you could have left standing. You're going to spend all your money doing that. You're going to— um, I mean, that that's what you want. You want everyone to be scared of you and you want to spend all your time rebuilding buildings uh, when you could be actually doing different things to change things. So I don't know. The, the whole thing was just so stupid and it showed her as really just a moron who had like horse blinders on. She can only see one thing in front of her and that was not at all how this character thought or acted for the entire run. They sold her so short in the end i have to imagine amelia clark was pissed because she was more invested in this character's run than anyone on earth could be any fan could possibly be any writer could possibly be this was her this was the role that made her you know who she is as far as an actor and she has to read that yeah you're going to you're going to just on a dime turn into like the most evil person in the the show and you're going to do something so stupid something that makes no sense and i do not understand where like what she thought would come of it—that would would have been good, at all. So it would, and all it was was just t- to shock you. Like that was the whole point. We're gonna do a sudden twist, and she's gonna actually be evil. Because she saw her best friend get killed. I mean, honestly, somebody who had lived through the death of a husband that. that, that uh, In the beginning, you know, treated her like an object and uh, an object and raped her, but ended up being someone that she, you know, really loved and had a true bond with. She lived through that. She lived through all the shit she's gone through, the constant abuse from her uh, brother of all those years, and she finally got to see him burn. And she's really going to flip that switch and become just as bad as the rest of her family. I don't know. It just it didn't make any sense when you thought about it. It fell fell apart very quickly. So let me going back though to that the the big moment with daenerys when she decides she's going to kill everybody so okay yes the red wedding was as shocking as anything that we've ever seen right that was the most shocking thing that i've maybe ever seen on television going back to what was that season 4 the red wedding was nuts and it blew everyone's mind and it made this show kind of the juggernaut that it would become But it was partly because it made sense to us. And it made the Stark family pay for being entirely too trusting. So the Red Wedding made sense. Yes, it was shocking. Yes, it was completely violent and brutal. But it, in some way, made some sense to us. And it felt natural, right? Obviously, they showed us a few times here and there that Daenerys liked to hand out bloody justice. But killing an entire city of regular people that included slaves and animals and rulers alike. I mean, cuz you know how many slaves she had to have burned up there too. She wasn't worried about freeing these people, she wasn't worried about giving them a better life. She just wanted them to die. I mean, what sense did that make? I could I mean, clearly if she wanted to burn up the the red keep and she wanted to torch that to the ground, fine. Totally makes sense. Wants to blast all of Cersei's army, wants to command, you know, Grey Worm to cut all their throats even though they've they've surrendered, I could see that being a being something that would happen and it would make sense. Completely makes sense. But to kill all these innocent people just didn't make any sense to me, just did not fit with that character whatsoever. It was everything she stood against for her entire life, and I don't think she'd give it up that. Quickly. We had absolutely no hint of it coming other than her bloodline. So I guess in the end, the entire theme of the series ends up being that whatever your family is, whatever your family, uh, however your family behaves, whatever family line you're born into, you are completely unable to act any different than your ancestors. That's kind of what they were saying, I guess, because the Stark kids are all basically like Ned Stark. And uh, all of the Lannisters are basically, you know, just like Tywin Lannister and except for uh, Tyrion, who I guess magically is somehow is able to be the only person in the entire show who escapes their family's line. All of the Targaryens are exactly like the Targaryens, except for Jon Snow, who didn't even find out he was a Targaryen to the last minute. So I guess it's a a nurture versus nature kind of thing here. But doesn't even make any sense because Daenerys came up and came of age on her own. So she wasn't even raised in that household. So I don't know. It's just the whole thing doesn't It doesn't make any sense no matter how you try to look at it. Because there's a huge difference in enjoying killing and enjoying vengeance and suddenly turning into a genocidal maniac. I mean, that's not the same thing at all. The sad thing about this finale, though, in the end, is that I think absolutely nobody is going to be talking about it in 10 years' time. And I think what it's going to really hurt it's going to hurt the the rewatch value of this show for people who never watched it the first time around. I don't think a lot of people are going to be flocking to see Game of Thrones because a finale goes a long way. When you know that you're, you can look forward to a finale that's great, it makes you want to watch the series. Because you know it's all going to go somewhere satisfying. But when you know a whole show, and there are a lot of you know episodes of, of Game of Thrones... 73 episodes, an hour each, you know, some of them are like two hours long, and it's this heavy subject matter, heavy material. You, It doesn't exactly make you want to look forward to watching this show when you know it all ends with a whimper. So, you know, people to this day still mention the ending of shows like The Sopranos and shows like Lost for different reasons. You know, people are split on both of them, but it's because they were memorable. Those endings were just so memorable. People still talk about the ending of St. Elsewhere. It was a, you know, a hospital series that aired 30 years ago. But people still talk about the ending of that show because it was memorable. The ending of MASH, the highest, you know, rated TV episode of all time, uh, scripted television episode of all time. People still talk about it because it's memorable. It's stuck in people's minds. The ending of Game of Thrones, not memorable at all. No one will talk about it. The ending to this show was so storybook and vanilla that it will completely be lost to the show's most memorable moments. And I think that's really a sad thing because this show was really something special when it started out. And it just turned into something so typical and just boring and predictable. So... That's my thoughts on the Game of Thrones series finale. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm sorry if you wanted to hear me maybe come up with a counterpoint and defend it a little bit, but I just can't in this case. Uh, because this was a show that I really did think was something special when I finally got into it. Uh, and I could see why, what the appeal was and why people were so electrified by this show. Because the first few seasons, if you watch the first four or five seasons of Game of Thrones, it's unlike anything you've seen before. It is something really. Memorable and special, but then after that, it all just falls off.
0: Your mother was a dumb whore with a fat ass. Did you know that?
2: So, do I recommend you watching Game of Thrones if you've never seen it? I do. I, I still do recommend you watching it because there are, are going to be references people will make to things that happen in that show that uh, you'll want to know if you're interested in knowing that kind of stuff and. Because you are watching some great acting, some really memorable characters, some fantastic sets, costuming, awesome music, um, and really memorable scenes of character interaction and of character deaths and things like what storytelling could be on television as far as movie quality Television, Game of Thrones is right up there with some of the best-looking TV that I've ever seen. So I do recommend watching it just for that, but just be aware that you're going to be disappointed in the end, and maybe that'll make it better and easier to watch because you don't have the high expectations. But the first few seasons, you'll be as drawn in as anyone has been by this show because it's 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 electrifying. It's great TV, uh, and and unlike anything that we've really ever seen before on the medium. So Game of Thrones is over. What did you think? Did you disagree? Did you think the finale was strong? Did you like anything about it? Email me at theclintdavis at gmail.com. the Davis at gmail.com. It stinks, as Jay Sherman would say. But the last thing on Game of Thrones here, before I uh, toss it over to Andy and cool down a little bit, is just to say that I think its lasting legacy um, is going to be interesting because is Game of Thrones going to go down as the last show where it was considered a must-watch live event as it aired, that's something that is like a dinosaur these days. I mean, you know that. Everyone watches their TV on a totally different schedule. I mean, when TiVo came out, that really changed the game for, well, I don't have to be a slave anymore to TV Guide and knowing exactly when something's going to air. I can watch an episode of a show tomorrow morning if I want to. I mean, obviously people did that with VCRs, but TiVo made it so easy and made it so effortless to just record tons of series and keep them stored up uh, forever. So the idea of people gathering around watching a show as it airs, so rare, but Game of Thrones was that. I think series finales are still going to be seen that way. I think people are going to gather around and watch series finales, but every episode of Game of Thrones was an event. It wasn't just the finale. It was every episode of the show, especially in the final two, three seasons. Every week, people felt like they needed to watch it when it was on, or they'd be so out of the loop on Monday and they'd risk seeing spoilers everywhere because it was the only show I can think of where every website, not just these TV nerd websites, every website was writing about this show and was writing about every single episode and every little thing that happened in this show. I got to tell you, man, remaining a hot property for eight years in this age of entertainment is almost unheard of. So the the people behind Game of Thrones should be proud that they were able to keep that kind of a, a momentum up for eight years. It's it's insane. Franchises like Marvel and Star Wars, which are obviously like the top of the, the heap in terms of our you know, mainstream entertainment, those are some of the only ones that can consistently coax massive numbers of people to watch something new for longer than eight-year periods. So Game of Thrones did that too, and that's amazing. Think of all the TV shows that were considered hot and big buzz drawers during the past eight years but never achieved the kind of popularity that Game of Thrones did. I'm thinking of shows like Mr. Robot, uh, Westworld, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Downton Abbey, House of Cards. Um, You know, shows like that all had their moments as like the most buzzworthy shows on TV, but none of them ever commanded live viewers like Game of Thrones did. Even since the last time we spoke, CBS's The Big Bang Theory came to an end. That show aired its final episode, and that was the most popular show on all of television for the past decade. That was the biggest number one rated show on all of television for the past decade. More viewers than Game of Thrones, you know, by a good bit. But did you see half as much content and reaction to its ending online as to the Game of Thrones ending? I mean, did anyone really react to it? There were a few interviews with some of the cast members and there was, you know, some stories saying like, Bing Bang Theory is over, but that's about it. There wasn't all this talk about every episode leading up to it because it just— It didn't get that kind of attention, even though it got more eyeballs on every episode. So the only current show right now that I can imagine drawing Game of Thrones type buzz and viewers during its last days would probably be NBC's This Is Us. That's the only show I can imagine getting write-ups about each episode during its final run, getting the kind of social reaction that Game of Thrones got. But that is the rare show that has intersected critics and mainstream viewers who just like TV as a casual bit of entertainment. Uh, Not a lot of shows can do that, but uh, This Is Us has done it. Game of Thrones did it. Uh, But we'll see. I mean, This Is Us still has a few years left before it's going to be over. So will it remain hot or will it cool off as well? I don't know. But Game of Thrones only got hotter as it went along, even though the quality of the episodes got weaker as the show went along, which I think is a very interesting thing as well. All right. I'm done talking about Game of Thrones. But again, if you have any thoughts on it, send me an email, theclintdavis at gmail.com. Hit me up on Twitter, at Mister Clint Davis. All right, I'm going to pass it over to Andy. Let's see what he's, uh, what he's been listening to for the last month. Take it away, my friend.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint
1: Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices Thank you, Clint. Great to be with you. You know, I'm I'm excited for this segment. Like, really pumped. This is a good topic. Uh, We're going to be talking about hit songs, bona fide top 40 hits that no one remembers. Hey, he ain't playing no games. These are not one-hit wonders. Most of them are by established artists played all over the world one minute And then uh, Forgotten the Next. Now, they've become the deepest of deep cuts. And although they started with a spark, they're now like down below the Earth's surface. Near the core, if you will. Below the mantle and uh, within the core. But here's the thing. Uh, We're going to rescue them today, my friends. And uh, we're going to go deep. We're going to go down deep to retrieve them. And bring them back. It's going to be a party.
0: I'm ready to party with the best of them.
1: By the way, my name is Andy Sedlak. I oversee all things music here at Stream PD. If you are enjoying this episode, please take a minute. Give us a positive review uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we're a, a shoestring operation here, so that uh, that does go a long way. Consider it your good deed for the, uh, for the day, or for the week. I don't know how good you want to be. I don't know your rate of good deeds. Good deed doing. You know, we're, we are really proud of this thing, too. I, I recently listened to one of Rolling Stone's podcasts, and it was it was so, so dull. So dull. And that's Rolling Stone, supposedly the authority on the very topics uh, that Clint and I talk about. So, with your help, with your help, and with those positive reviews, those five-star reviews, uh, maybe we'll we'll start creeping up on the uh, on the big guys one day. Now. Uh, let's get to these songs, okay? These songs are now long forgotten. They did not bomb. I cannot stress that. They did not bomb. They did their job. They held up their end of the bargain. They climbed the charts. They made money. They got radio play. But for one reason or another, they died an unassuming death and have, have not um, been heard in years, okay? So this started the other day when when my co-host asked me if I had heard a Paul McCartney song called My Brave Face. Uh, We all know Maybe I'm Amazed. We all know Silly Love songs. We all know. I mean, we all know uh, McCartney's Beatles songs like Hey Jude and Yesterday. But it's a different story with a song like My Brave Face. It was released as a single in 1989. Became a top 40 hit in April of that year. The album that it's on, Flowers in the Dirt, also a hit. So let's listen to it. Here we go. Brave Face was actually McCartney's last hit song, last top 40 song before this one just five years ago, and everybody knows this. Paul McCartney's My Brave Face, which he co wrote with Elvis Costello. You know, it does not help that McCartney doesn't perform this song live like ever, or that he uh, disappeared (laughs) after it came out. He didn't put out another album for four years. But there are a million songs like My Brave Face. And these days, most radio stations have very thin, very can't-miss playlists. Uh, so you end up hearing the same songs over and over. So something like My Brave Face, it's not considered can't-miss. So if it doesn't pop up in concert or in a, like a movie trailer, then it's lost forever. Because you're not going to hear it on the radio. There's a song from Elvis Presley that was a hit, got some love when it came out, but just dropped off the face of the earth. You know, we've heard Hound Dog, we've heard Heartbreak Hotel and Suspicious Minds, but what about this one? It's called If You Talk in Your Sleep. Talk In Your Sleep was released in 1975. Elvis died two years later. Like My Brave Face, If You Talk In Your Sleep was released as a single and was a real deal hit. Got all the way up to number 17 on the Hot 100 and even up to number six on the country chart. That's right, it was a top 10 country hit, yet no one remembers it. Obviously Elvis cannot revive this in concert, so unless it unless it finds a home in like a movie trailer that goes viral, it may be a goner. Let's listen once more. This is Elvis Presley, If You Talk in Your Sleep. We, um, we live in such a global society now. It's, it's almost hard to imagine something being a hit in one country and not uh, in another. And we actually talked about that a couple episodes ago. But here, uh, this next song is by an American artist who had a number one hit, a number one hit in the Netherlands. And this this situation here is a little different. A number one hit in the Netherlands, but nobody in her native country, nobody here in the States had heard it. This is Ellen Foley, and we belong to the night. Ellen Foley sang backup for Meatloaf, who just two years before this song was released, released the album, Bad Outta Hell. It has sold 40 million copies. In fact, the most famous song from the album, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, is a duet with Ellen Foley. So this is her stepping out on her own. And, you know, Foley wrote this song. She was backed up by Ian Hunter's band. The record was released in the summer of 1979. Hunter and uh, Mick Ronson produced it. Ronson did David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust album. uh, And he he also played in Bowie's band. But while Foley caught fire with the Dutch, working with the who's who of... 70s rock did nothing for her in the uh, good old USA. She released another record which went nowhere and now she's a vocal coach at a music school in New York City. Alright, moving on. More big names associated with this next song. Check this out. It was written by Paul McCartney. It was produced by Dave Edmonds. And it was performed by a couple Rock and Roll Hall of Famers who have sold tens of millions of records. On the Wings of a Nightingale by the Everly Brothers. It was their biggest hit in almost 20 years. A bonafide comeback single and it is virtually unknown now. Here it is. How about this one from Madonna, who just turned 60 years old, by the way? It got all the way up to number three, number three, in 1985, the height of Madonna Mania. But talk to the average fan, and they do not know this song. It is called True Blue. This song was supposedly written about then-husband uh, Sean Penn. The name of the album was also True Blue, but Pop It on Preach is the song people remember, not this one. part of the problem is that madonna didn't perform it live for about 25 years (laughs) it wasn't it wasn't performed one time between 1987 and 2015 that spans what at least two generations of fans now she has started playing it again though she's kind of doing like a a folky country version of it with like acoustic guitars and a ukulele (laughs) And then there's the strange case of Tony Carey, Tony Carey, who had two top 40 hits in the summer of 1984. Um, No one remembers either one of them now. Now, do you hear my dog back there? Tony Carey had two top 40 hits in the summer of 1984 no one remembers them these are actual hits the first is called a Fine Fine Day it's sort of like a uh, like a Springsteen meets Thin Lizzy type of thing here it is 15 weeks, 15, 15 weeks on the Hot 100, peaking at number 22. This is his other Top 40 song called The First Day of Summer. Now, way back in the day, Tony Carey was hired by Richie Blackmore uh, to be a guitarist in the band Rainbow. Legendary uh, legendary hard rock band. This is weird. Ten years ago, Carey was diagnosed with stomach cancer. He was told he had like a a 10% chance to live. He was in the hospital 12 weeks. He had five surgeries. He did the unthinkable. He made a full recovery. Though as soon as he was cleared, Ronnie James Dio, who was also in rainbow, was also diagnosed with the same disease. Dio did not make it. Dying at the age of 67, Kerry remains in good health to this day. A fine, fine day indeed. (laughs) This is a Stream Police podcast where we're talking about hit songs that nobody remembers. These are not album cuts. These are not deep cuts. These are not b-sides. These are the real deal. These are hit songs that were played on the radio. Uh, They just did not stand the test of time. Uh, There are many that we could be discussing, but these are my favorites, and I have one more for you. It's by LL Cool J. Yeah, LL Cool J, a.k.a. The Ladies Love Cool James, LL Cool J. Take you back to 1989 when rap songs told stories. Uh, this is called, well, this is called Big Old Butt.
0: When I went home, I kissed my girl on the cheek. But in the back of my mind, it wasn't Big Butt Freak. I sat my girl down. I couldn't hold it in and said to her, with a devilish grin, Tina got a big old butt. I know I told you I'd be true. Tina got a big old butt, so I'm leaving you. Tina got a big old butt. I know I told you I'd be true. Tina got a big old butt, so I'm leaving
1: you. This was released uh, in the era of Paul's Boutique, De La Soul, Queen Latifah. It made an impact on the hip hop community, got all the way to number 13 uh, on the rap charts. Number 57, actually, on the RB side. It's funny it even charted on r&b at all but still had a commercial impact uh on the golden age of hip-hop it really did here it is again
0: girls all over the kind i adore I felt like a kid in a candy store that's when i seen her her name was brenda she had the kind of booty that i'd always remember i said to my man stop the g she's only 17 but yo don't sleep I kick the bass like an nfl punter and sculpt the booty like a big game hunter
1: the song has been totally forgotten about despite a memorable video that played on mtv will live on forever on youtube several meme worthy moments you know and ll has had a career released music for a long time obviously now he's doing stuff on screen so it's not as if LL Cool J is not relevant. He just, man, he just, this song ain't around.
0: When I was through, I wiped the sweat from my eyes. Went to the kitchen and got some sweet potato pies. Tina busted at my house while I was eating. You know what I said? Too bad you caught me cheating, but Brenda got a big old butt. I know I told you I'd be true, but Brenda got a big old butt. So I'm leaving you.
1: Now, it's stupid. Of course it's stupid. That's what makes it fun. The song feels like a joke between buddies. It was released on an album called Walking with a Panther. Which is totally shit on by rap fans. Because it had what was considered to be too many ballads at the time. So a goofy song like this, I will be be honest here. It was not timed real well. If this would have come out after a banger, I think people would have remembered it. Timing is everything, as they say. Still... There was initial success. It climbed the charts and made money, but was soon discarded to the dustbin of hip hop.
0: I grabbed my pants, put on my kango. Who did I see? Oh, yo, it was Brenda. <laughs> yo, she worked at Red Lobster, but I didn't remember. Lisa got a big old butt. I know I told you I'd be true, but Lisa got a big old butt, so I'm leaving you. <laughs> see ya. <laughs> Lisa got a big old butt. I know I told you i be true. So I'm leaving you. See ya.
1: Now before I get out of here, I do want to mention that iTunes will be going dark this fall. Though really Apple isn't changing much. In terms of music, you'll still be able to buy individual songs. You just do it from a uh, from the Apple streaming app, from Apple Music. For TVs, movies, podcasts, you'll use separate apps for those. Again, not much is changing. You won't lose your library. Songs that you bought will still be uh, in your possession. Songs that you ripped from CDs way back in the day, those will still be there. Uh, they're just reshuffling where their features are located. There's reshuffling where the same same features they've always had, how you access those. That's really what it, that's really what's happening. It's all good. All right. Friends, you know that we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. At the end of each segment here, I give you five more songs to add to the playlist, which you can find on Spotify. All you have to do is search uh, Stream Police. You can listen to every one of these recommendations. And I recommend you do it. Five new songs. Here we go. Number five System of a Down and Dreaming. Yeah. Number four, this is Joey Ramone and Life's, gas. life's a gas. Last G is Last
0: G is. Last G is. Oh yeah. Last Ges. Last GS. Last GS
1: number three move over to country this is Roseanne Cash and 7 year ache All right, number two from the album Old News. It's The Steel Woods with The Rock That Says My Name. And finally, this is Bring It On by Slade Cleaves.
0: I know we don't deserve to be going down this way, pushed around and bound to troubled days. Every time we stand
2: up, dust each other off, I know we may be losing.
0: Lost bring it on, bring it on. I seen the rain tumbling down. I felt the cold and blue. I seen trouble hanging round. Bring it on. Bring it on.
1: Alright, everybody, thank you so much. I appreciate you hanging out with us. I really do. Toss it back to Clint. Behave yourselves. See ya.
2: Thanks, Andy. Always great to share the microphone with you, my friend. Always great to take a few puffs from my stogie while I'm sitting in here in the closet as well. All right, getting back to television, and I hate to only talk about—I hate to spend a whole episode only talking about one network, but— HBO uh, also saw the end of another series since the last time we spoke, and it's a series that overall I enjoyed from start to finish more than I enjoyed Game of Thrones, and that is The Great Veep, which ended after seven seasons and 65 episodes on the network. 65, tight, half-hour, constantly hilarious, uh, just... The kind of show that will paralyze you with jokes because it just hammers you with them. Like, you remember, did you ever watch, like, Airplane or, um, Angie Tribeca or the Naked Gun movies or anything like that where the jokes just come at you so rapid fire that you you don't even have time to really react to half of them. It's like you only catch a few. You, you have to watch the show with subtitles on just so you can even read most of the jokes or you're going to miss them because you're laughing over top of the other ones. Veep was like that. Not Not at all the same tone as those shows. It was not like wacky physical gags and things like that. It was much more written in the style of a show like an Arrested Development or Seinfeld, if that's more kind of the uh, the humor that you like. I don't even want to compare it to Seinfeld. The only reason I do is because it had some of the big writers who did some of the best episodes of Seinfeld on its writing staff and, and running the show as it went on, and obviously Julia Louis-Dreyfus was the star of the series. But Veep is kind of its own thing. I can't really think of another series that's that's really like it all the way. If you never watched this show, I talked about it you know, several times over the years here on this series. Beth and I watched it. From the start, we watched kind of every episode as it aired. It was one of those rare shows we did that with. Um, And just it was always funny. Every season was funny. Sometimes they repeated some situations, but it was really a great run all the way through, especially for a comedy. So this series, if you never saw it, it starred Julie Louis-Dreyfus as uh, the vice president of the United States, Selena Meyer, who's just this horrible... Person And the series starts with her as vice president and the show follows her run as Veep and then eventually uh, as president herself and then eventually as a pariah basically in Washington and then coming back with another run toward the presidency. And that's what the whole final season was about. Is she going to win the presidency on her own merits or uh, is her leg is her legacy going to kind of be, you know, in the trash can, which is where you kind of want to see it be like what this show is to me. To really to go back to Game of Thrones for just a second, it's like if Cersei Lannister was the main character of Game of Thrones and if that show was a comedy. That's what Veep is like. Like Selena Meyer is such a bad person. She's one of the worst Human beings ever presented as a television character. Like, I mean, you talk about just really no humanity whatsoever. She's so brutal. She's, bar none, the worst mother I've ever seen on TV. She just represents everything that you think and hate about politics. Like, that's just in her soul. She's horrible. If you opened up her body, you would just see, like, there would be no heart in there. It would just be all black um, and charred away because she's, and just sludge and slime because she's just an. An awful person but she's charming she's very funny very smart um and surrounds herself with like this great team so veep is just great because there's no one to root for on this show like everyone's such an asshole that i mean you really don't kind of want anyone to win in the end especially when you get to that final season and you're trying to figure out who's going to be president like all the options are bad so it's, it's really it can be kind of like our own political system sometimes in that uh but the cast of this show is so goddamn good. Everyone in this cast pulled their weight through every season of this show, and Anna Klumsky, I think is the one that you have to point to the most as somebody who just nailed it every single season. She was, if you remember the movie My Girl with uh Macaulay Culkin back in the day, the movie that made everyone my age scared of uh, uh, terrified of of bees for the rest of their lives. Uh Anna Klumsky was the girl in My Girl. She was the the you know little love interest girlfriend of Macaulay Culkin in that movie. So now obviously she's you know in her 30s and she's much more formidable uh and I don't think I don't think you know an army of of nuclear weapons could kill the character that Anna Klumsky played in VEEP. Uh she was basically like the campaign manager, like the number two for Selena Meyer, and she is just—I mean—talk about another character who I think if you opened her up, you wouldn't find a whole lot of humanity in there. Horrible person, totally driven just to do her job. Um, and Klumsky was just so funny in every single episode of this show. She was—I mean—to to be able to stand next to Julie Louis-Dreyfus and hold your own, and sometimes outshine her—that's uh, almost impossible to do. But Anna Klumsky did it many times in this series Tony Hale from Arrested Development he was um he was Tobias in that series he plays like uh Selena's kind of bumbling Assistant who lives only to make her happy and to do whatever she wants, you know, getting her food, getting putting her makeup on for her, like doing just carrying her bag. Like that's what he does and whispering into her ear. Every person that comes up to greet her, he always knows who they are and wants to remind her before they get to uh, to her so that uh, she's not embarrassed not that I don't think she could ever really be embarrassed, um, but Tony Hale was great. Uh, Reed Scott, fantastic, is this like classic slimy Washington uh, playboy who works on her team in a, in a variety of capacities, thinks he's always the smartest guy in the room, rarely is. Uh, Matt Walsh as her press director, and he's you know probably the biggest idiot of all of them, just has no clue how to write anything but somehow has the job uh, of being the vice president's speechwriter and and press guy. Uh, Gary Cole as, like, her numbers man. He, he was the guy who played Lumberg in uh, Office Space. So funny in this role. He's basically just like a human robot. Um, and Kevin Dunn, again, another guy who just completely steals most of uh, the scenes that he's in. He's like her, you know, top advisor, and he's been around politics since— pretty much everyone in the show uh, before they were born and uh, probably has had 25 liver replacements because he drinks uh, like a fish so it's uh, it's just a really great cast of characters it's so funny like i said the episodes are a half hour long so it's always tight always hilarious and the jokes are just the jokes go places that you would never think any respectable tv show would go uh, but they just had absolutely no fear when writing this series, and HBO, I can't imagine HBO said no to anything uh, because of the, the jokes that flew on this series. Uh, I just, I mean, I was like, my jaw drops sometimes uh, when watching this series, and that's hard for me to do, but uh, I was blown away. The show, you know, racked up Emmys during its run. It it, uh, it constantly got acclaimed, and I, I don't think it, I don't know how, viewership-wise kind of what it did, but It's a shame that not more people talk about this show uh, or mention it kind of among the great comedy series because I think it certainly deserves uh, its place there. And Julie Louis-Dreyfus, again, proves that she is unmatched when it comes to choosing projects to work on uh, because she just seems to not be able to miss when it comes to TV. All the shows she's been a part of have succeeded and done well and earned her acclaim and earned her a ton of money and uh veep is is right up there i think with her work on seinfeld as far as some of the best comedy work that we've ever seen done and she carries the whole series so it's really her vehicle and and she proved to be the only person i think who could lead this series i just i don't know how she said some of the things that she said and i don't know how she could embody this character without you know kind of wanting to go home and jump off a building after every night but um it's a blast veep is awesome uh hilarious show totally recommend you watch it if you like those kind of uh smart comedies and if you don't mind jokes that will make you hate the characters and if you don't need to like the people that you're watching on tv Give it a watch, because you're going to hate everyone on this show. That's just the way it is. Uh, But it's really funny, and there's no other show really like it all the way through. All seven seasons, all 65 episodes streaming on HBO. You can find them out there on home video as well. And I think if you watch through the first season, you'll know whether or not this is the show for you. And it'll be over in a heartbeat. Uh, The show just absolutely flies by. So uh, check it out. I I don't think you'll regret it. At all, and veep came to an end in this last month. No one talked about its finale, but I thought it did a really nice job of being of out Game of Thrones in Game of Thrones as far as its final storyline was who 's going to be the president who 's going to win this election who 's going to sit in the white house it wasn 't who 's going to sit on the iron throne it was who 's going to sit behind that big desk in the Oval Office and uh, Veep kept me interested in genuinely guessing all the way through as far as who was going to end up taking that big job and uh, I thought uh, the way they ended it was really well done and it was a very good finale this was an example of a finale that was really well done and uh, uh, they they just nailed it they stuck to their guns the whole way through and did not change uh, for anyone so Veep is a great uh, accomplishment in television especially in comedies and I'm sad to see it go I think we should all be very sad to see this series off the air now but check it out streaming on HBO now
0: Bill! Hi, I just wanted to reconfirm that I can still count on your vote.
2: Actually, Madam President, I've
1: been doing quite a bit of soul searching, and um, I'm afraid I need to listen to my conscience. Conscience? The fuck are you talking about? After much prayerful consideration, I've decided to abstain from the upcoming congressional tie breaking vote in Congress. Abstain? Yes, ma'am. But then no one wins. You dumbass! I was warned that you would say some hurtful things. Okay, hold on. Let me
0: see if I can just explain this to you in terms that you might understand. Okay, mm-hmm. let's say that your chief of staff, Nadia, is it? That's... okay, and she's down on her knees, and she's got your balls in her hand, and she's working your shaft just the way you like it. And moments. Before you're about to come all over her stupid Slavic face, she says, Niet. After much prayerful consideration, I have to abstain from the upcoming blood job. Are you Nadia in this situation? Just get out of my sight. Oh, fuck.
1: Okay.
2: Let me guess. Jaeger's abstaining. Yeah. Nickerson, too. Tom's not lobbying votes for O'Brien. He's asking people to abstain.
1: What the fuck is happening?
2: If no one gets a majority in the House, the vote goes to the Senate. I explained this on election night.
0: I wasn't listening.
2: Yeah, but obviously Tom was. Tom James is an acknowledged master of the Senate's rules and procedures, so if it's up to the Senate, Tom is our next president. All right, man, I took my throat is hurting. I talked way too much about Game of Thrones in this episode and got way too fired up. I, needed to, I should have probably opened with Veep since it uh, put me in a much better mood. To talk about here on uh, on the stream police, all right let 's wrap things up, talking about some movies here. The best thing I watched this month. I always like to tell you at the end of the show what it was because you know if you follow me on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis, if you pay attention to my stories on there, uh, not the photos I post because mostly that 's just going to be pictures of my son and my dogs that 's pretty much it there. but if you watch my stories you 'll see all the movies I watch on a weekly basis and uh, I always like to tell you on the show here what's the best thing I watched this month. This month was tough. Again, I watched a lot of good stuff. But the thing that sticks out the most to me is a movie that uh, really blew me away is Sunset Boulevard from 1950. This is one of those movies I've always heard about, heard as you know one of those must-sees. And that's always dangerous when you hear that. You never know, should I believe the hype? I mean, is it going to be really good? Is it going to be... Um, was it good for its time not so good anymore you know there's always a danger of that but sunset boulevard holy shit i'm mad that i waited this long to finally watch this movie this is the one that's about the old faded aging silent movie actor who kind of lives alone with her butler in this massive hollywood mansion and she ends up entangling this you know, hopeful screenwriter who's kind of destitute at this point, looking for anything to write, she entangles him into her world somehow. He doesn't even realize how it's happening. And uh, she's totally self-obsessed. She has pictures of herself all over the place. She watches her own movies every week, doesn't watch anyone else's movies, thinks that, you know, the talking pictures ruined Hollywood and that the stars now aren't as big as they used to be. Um, And it's that all that stuff. This is the movie that kind of invented that whole You know, that whole story that we've seen now many times done over and Gloria Swanson as that faded actor from the silent film era is so good. This was a masterclass in overacting, but not turning you off and not making it, you know, laughable like it was overacting, but totally done in a way that need it. Sometimes overacting needs to happen. It's not always a bad thing. Chewing up the scenery is not always a bad thing. It's bad when it doesn't fit with the story, and when the director seems to have absolutely no reign over the or over the actors whatsoever. When they just seem to be exercising no control at all. But you could tell with Gloria Swanson, she knew what she was doing. She was totally dialed into this. And uh, Billy Wilder, the director, uh, co-writer, just he's a he's a genius. He's one of the best directors of all time. Every Wilder movie I've ever seen, I've loved. So if anybody could pull this movie off, it'd be him. And William Holden as the co-star, as the uh, younger writer who ends up, you know, being like a fly in her web is also great because he's not a really likable guy either. Um, But he does a great job in this role. And I mean, William Holden always does a great job. So Sunset Boulevard, I was just blown away. I loved it from start to finish. That dialogue that sounds like I mean, it was written in 1950, but it sounds like it was written, you know, last week. It's just totally fresh still to this day and that beautiful black-and-white cinematography. I loved this movie. So if you're looking for an oldie that you want to check out that still feels like a, a really good film and feels like something better than what you're going to see in theaters now, check out Sunset Boulevard. I do not think you'll be disappointed no matter what kind of film you like because it's got something for everybody. There's funny stuff. It's very dramatic and very serious as well. I also re-watched Jackie Brown, and I was reminded how much I love that movie, so I just wanted to mention that. Uh, Real quick, my sister-in-law came over. She loves Tarantino as much as I do. And uh, we watched, uh, she had never seen Jackie Brown. And I was like, this is his most underrated movie by far. And I hadn't seen it in years. And again, I was reminded how much I love that movie. I think Jackie Brown is the ultimate rewatch. And you'll enjoy it more. I think the first time anyone watches Jackie Brown, they're kind of wondering, where's the story? What's happening? What's the point of all this? Why do I need two and a half hours of hanging out with all these characters? But that's the point. The point of it is when you watch it a second time, you realize it's not about the plot. It's not about the heist in the, at the center of this. It's just about these characters. They're just cooler than shit. They just talk cool. They're just fun to spend time with. And that's a Tarantino hallmark. And I think uh, when you've got actors like Samuel L. Jackson and Robert De Niro and Bridget Fonda and uh, Robert Forster and Pam Greer doing the kind of work that they do in this movie, you plot is just – plot doesn't even matter, man. It's just about hanging out with these characters. So if you never saw Jackie Brown, give that one a watch. That's the great underrated Tarantino movie. All right, a couple movies now streaming for you. I like to throw at you uh, ones that you should check out on Netflix and Amazon. something funny for you and something serious if you 're looking to beef up your uh, Netflix and Amazon watch queue. I know that's asking a lot because there's tons of shit out there to watch, but you can always you always make time for something good, something funny for you on Netflix. This is one, I don't like to recommend things I have not watched before, but I want to throw this at you. Tales of the City, new miniseries coming out on Netflix. This is going to be a new update to a great PBS miniseries that came out in 1993 with Laura Lenny and Olympia Dukakis. And Tales of the City is based on this series of books written by Armistead Maupin, who used to be this, uh, he was like a newspaper columnist he wrote the book actually as like a series of little short chapters that were published in the newspaper in san francisco and this whole story it, it, it's just great talk about colorful characters this is like tales of the city is the ultimate kind of hangout miniseries it's not there's no big plot in this either it's just getting to know cool characters and seeing kind of where their lives go and and tales of the city was so revolutionary at the time the book was like written in the 70s it's a great book if you've never read it I, that's one i totally recommend It just let, like, many of the characters are queer. There are a lot of gay characters, you know, a lot of straight characters too, but a lot of gay characters, and they're just allowed to be just gay. Like, that's just part of who they are. It's not, it doesn't serve some purpose in the story. It doesn't lead to some great revelation for anyone. It's just, they're just gay. Like, that's just part of who they are. It's just in their DNA. So, uh, Tales of the City's just got tons of great characters in it tons of colorful little adventures in and around san francisco it 's a you know one of those kind of precursors to sex in the city, uh, but I like it better than sex in the city so i don 't know if Netflix is going to pull in the original miniseries, but if they do, you should definitely check it out because it 's really cool stuff and uh, i 'm excited to watch this this new version, which is also going to have Laura Lenny in it again and uh Olympia dukakis and what it 's really about if you want to know is laura lenny 's character is like this midwestern kind of a naive woman who comes to San Francisco because she just wants to get away from, she's from Cleveland. Actually, she wants to get away from Cleveland and away from her hometown, away from her parents. And she ends up falling in love with San Francisco, falling in love with all the weirdos that she meets out there and, um, ends up living in this big apartment complex that is full of all these characters. And that's kind of where the stories come from is her living in this apartment complex. So it's, it's pretty cool. It's a great setting and it's just a a good little, vehicle for a miniseries. So, Tales of the City, coming out on Netflix this month. Also on Netflix, something very serious for you and worth your time, 1976's Network, directed by Sidney Lumet. Might be my favorite director ever. I don't know. I go back and forth between different guys, but Lumet is the guy who consistently just produced those movies that I absolutely love. He was the best, to me, 70s Director And that's saying something because that's when Coppola and that's when, uh, Scorsese were at their best and even, uh, Kubrick. But Lumet to me just was, he, he was seventies filmmaking and, uh, he, he's just magical and network is one of the best that he ever did. Faye Dunaway heads up this fantastic cast. It's network is like all about what went wrong with television, like where TV went when it became sensationalized shit. Um, And especially TV news versus what it was in the years before that. So Network was way ahead of its time. The acting in it is superb. The story is epic as far as the impact it has on our lives. Uh, And it's just a cool movie. So I cannot recommend Network anymore. It's a, a great watch from 1976, now on Netflix. Finally, on Amazon for you, something funny from 2010. How about Jackass 3D? Let me take you like completely the other way. Network is something for your brain. Jackass 3D, something for, well, I don't know what part of your body it's for, but when did it ever get old watching guys nearly kill themselves doing stupid stunts and pranks on each other um, and having a blast doing it? Nobody really ever probably had more fun making movies than the guys from Jackass did. And Jackass 3D was kind of their last hurrah, I guess, and that came out... In 2010, it's right now on Amazon Prime. And something serious for you on Amazon Prime. Speaking of Quentin Tarantino, the movie that made him the name that he is today, Reservoir Dogs from 1992. If somehow you've never watched this movie, turn it up as loud as it goes and give it a watch. If you want to see a heist movie where there is no heist, where everything goes wrong, and all it is is just about getting to the bottom of who's the rat in the middle of this uh, big maze of twisty-turny characters, Uh, And if you want a lesson on why crime doesn't pay, check out Reservoir Dogs. There's no movie like it still to this day. And you can see why Quentin Tarantino became the icon that he is now from uh, writing and directing this little gem in 1992. It's a classic. Love that movie. I never get tired of it. It's one of the best soundtracks ever put the film all right that's going to do it my friend thank you very much for hanging out with us today on the stream police podcast be sure to recommend us give us that big fat five-star review and reach out to us if you have any questions or comments or suggestions of things to watch or listen to you can reach me at theclintdavis clint davis at gmail.com t-h-e clint davis at gmail.com you can reach andy at uh, sedlak journal at gmail.com s-e-d-l-a-k journal at gmail.com Com. Be sure to follow that Spotify playlist, too, because uh, there's tons of good stuff on there. You turn that on shuffle, you'll never have to listen to another playlist again, my friend. All right. We'll talk to you next time. Until then, stream on.